Hi, everyone, and welcome to Conversations on Sex, Addiction, and Relationships. I'm Dan Drake, and I'm joined with my colleagues, Tim Stein and Wendy Conquest. And today we're going to be talking about shame, shame with the addict. This is the third part in a series on shame. So this is a huge topic to discuss, and I I'm, I'm, can't say I'm excited to talk about it. I know we all wore black today. I actually had a black <laughs> coat on, uh, and I think that was probably no coincidence, given the topic. Um, but anyway, I just want to introduce this because I think it's a really important conversation topic uh, when we're when you're dealing with addiction and especially sex addiction. So where do we start, guys, when you're thinking of shame? Shame with you. I think, Tim, you, you, you kind of keyed us off uh, earlier just in terms of the two different ways shame shows up for the addict. No, we, 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 when, we, when we talk about shame, and I will say I'm actually excited to talk about shame, not because it's a happy subject that I'm glad that everybody has, but because I think it's such an important and integral topic to understand related to addiction in general and sex addiction in specific. And the two different ways that we're going to uh, move around and talk about shame on the addict side today is one, the deep shame core that addicts experience that comes typically from their childhood or other traumatic experiences that they had that create that sense of I'm not enough. So there's that shame core that has has been with them for a very, very long time that is usually integral in the addiction uh, sort of evolving and developing and, and getting locked in place in the first to, to start with. And then two is the shame that is connected to the addict's addictive behavior, whether they are consciously um feel shame about their behavior or whether that's an unconscious process that shame of what addicts do in their behavior and the resistance that they unconsciously feel to wanting to go back and acknowledge and look at the behavior they've done the impact it's had on them their relationships and the people around them and uh, the shame that they feel just because of the behaviors that came up in their addiction you know I, I've, yeah that's so well put tim um with working with clients, I'm curious with the two of you, because I, when I start working with an addict, I don't openly say, oh, we're going to talk about your shame. Um, but it comes up in ways of, uh, I, I, eventually it comes up. I don't feel like I'm enough. I don't feel that what I do is enough. I don't feel that what I provide is enough. I uh, struggle with um, imposter syndrome. So if I am in a uh, high ranking position or profession, I feel like I really am fooling everybody because I'm, I'm, I'm at the core worthless. I really uh, am, am not smart. I'm not talented. Um, so a lot of times we frame that as self-esteem. Um, and what I find is that there are so many protective mechanisms when they first come in to therapy uh, to that they, they, it's not at all easy or simple to start looking at how they've been carrying these core messages, I'm going to say all their lives. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you said that. I'm going to take it on a little tangent. And, and this is one of my huge pet peeves in uh clinicians who in my opinion don't really know what they're doing when it comes to sex addiction 
And I have had too many uh, clients and heard too many stories of people say, well, I worked with this therapist and they just said, all I needed to do was heal my relationship with myself, which is, you know, psychobabble for address the shame and heal the trauma. And once I did that, because I changed my relationship with myself, I wouldn't have the compulsions to act out anymore. Mm -hmm. And I just want to say that as much as we're talking about shame and the importance of addressing and healing shame, the nature of addiction is such that it has neurologically rewired your brain. And so there's such an important piece about doing the work to get sober and stay sober and have a support foundation around you to maintain that, that that is important and the shame work and the trauma work is essential, but please don't skip over the, the get the, the get sober, say sober work. That is so important, not yeah. to minimize the, the shame and the trauma work, but I just feel like it's really important to say that because I hear that oh. more often, especially with people who come in and have just made no progress in being able to find sobriety. Right. You'll get the, if, if I, uh, this is at the root of my problem. So if I deal with the trauma and the root of my problem, then the symptoms, uh, however they're showing up will, will go away. So you're right. It doesn't just work that simply. Well, yeah, I, but, and I think that the 12 step communities and all that 12, oh, so the 12 step work and, and the getting sober, stopping that behavior first, um, that, if, how do I say that is the first stage for supporting this piece of, oh, there are other people that like me. There are other people that accept me in the the horrible things that I've done. Uh, this is a safe place to be able to share what I have done. And so that's immediately starting to build some foundation for self-esteem. Oh, absolutely. Are you in yeah. agreement? I think we're in agreement. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I yeah, think yeah. Okay. that's one of the biggest benefits when you go walk into a 12-step meeting, people assume, well, I'm uniquely defective. I'm bad. I'm, you know, whatever, whatever the messages are, I'm, I'm unlovable, unworthy. And then they share vulnerably their heart and the stuff that isn't so pretty or that, that they think they'd be judged by and not. And instead of getting judgment, they get acceptance and love. So of course, that's going to be well, hugely valuable. And, and I assume you guys have this. I see it frequently with, with my clients and people I know in recovery that when they are preparing their first step and it gets to the point of taking their first step and converting it into a first step presentation to give to their home group, it's very frequent that I have people with a lot of anxiety because they're convinced that whatever they've said in their first step is going to be the thing that the group is going to reject. Mm. Because even though they've been in that 12-step program for so long, their shame of, I did this, I'm defective, I'm the unique one that's different from everybody else, you know, that that there's often a lot of fear. And that's one of the primary conversations that comes up with, for my clients when they're leading into their first step is, it's going to be okay, you know, share what you need to share. You're they're, they're, It's a safe group, it's a safe space. But the default that most addicts hold on to is, I'm bad. This first step is going to shine a light for this group on how bad I am, and they're going to reject me. They're Can we re then back up? Because I think that's the link. Um, that that may we know what the the I guess the benefits of of 
sharing this in a 12 step meeting, how, how that'd be beneficial or sharing in a therapy group or individual therapy or whatever the safe, vulnerable context. But we have to acknowledge that wasn't always safe for people to be their full authentic self growing up, right? Like that's the, the origins of those messages didn't just come out of left field based on the actions that someone may have done. It usually comes from some sort of trauma, neglect, abuse, that mm. happened early on. And then that's where those messages were installed. I, you know, maybe I, I tried to be myself and I was uh, beaten for that or whatever. It could have been a lot of different things that, that someone may have experienced from a young age, but those messages get installed early, which means I have, I can't be my full authentic self. I have to hide parts of myself. I'm, you know, okay. or I take on the trauma, the impact of the trauma on myself. I'm going to throw an enmeshment at the uh, enmeshment. Thank you. That, yes. Uh, sure. Enmeshment does that same thing. Of well, there was, there. there was early research that uh, I think Pat Carnes and his research team did on what is the typical pattern that leads to somebody being a sex addict, which is the type of families which are really rigid or very enmeshed or very disconnected. Mm -hmm. And the, the pattern was basically you come out of this family, you have a lot of anxiety and a lot of sense of not being okay either because you don't live up to the cookie cutter mold that your family has determined is what you're supposed to be, or they just don't pay attention to you. And at some point, usually there's sexual behavior, sexual abuse in there somewhere. And there's this link of sexual behavior helps me to not feel the anxiety and the fear. And really what we're talking about there is the shame. And then the, the sexual behavior becomes more of a coping skill and that creates the neurological wiring for addiction that keeps driving it. And then that behavior becomes the driving behavior that they use to not feel the shame. And the shame core keeps growing because of the addictive behaviors and the chaos and the conflict and the consequences that it creates. So there's there's this whole piece, like you were saying, yeah, the shame is at the core of addiction and it comes out of that uh, typically comes out of that very early childhood experiences that put it all in motion in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, I think you might be referring to his article, The Making of a Sex Addict. I think so. Patrick Carnes. It's about three pages long and uh, very concise about the dynamics that create sex addiction. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Can I pause for just a second on that, on that note? Mm -hmm. So there are people... We've I've heard it. I, I can assume that you've in your practices heard some variation of this. That we'll get someone coming into our office, and then they'll say, "Well, my past, basically, my, some version of my past made me do it." So because I learned these sexual behaviors as a coping mechanism because of trauma that I've experienced in the past, and then they're almost now excusing the behaviors or justifying them. Have you experienced this? And if so, I guess I want to differentiate that. Yes, that. Uh, our pasts can open up the door to certain coping mechanisms and we're still responsible for those behaviors, especially yeah. as adults. So I guess I want to differentiate responsibility and the impact of trauma on, on our coping. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, my clients tend to go the other way that my, um, my background, my, my biological roots have nothing to do with what wasn't I, that bad at a great childhood. Exactly. Yeah. There's a lot of, um, protection around the family and, um, and that they didn't have anything to do with it. There's no reason to go back there. 
um, to to address what's happening now. So I get that more than the other. Mm -hmm. How about you, Tim? I I get more of the my childhood was fabulous, and you know I've been doing this work long enough that at this point I think oh another fantasy to shatter. Um, but I, I get more the, my family was fabulous. I don't get a lot of the, the clients who go with the, well, I was abused so much. So it really justifies my addiction. And when that does come up, I move into the, the denial mechanisms mm -hmm. about hopelessness yeah. and helplessness and how you're really just throwing your hands up and not taking responsibility right. for your part. Um, do you get that in your practice? Me? Yeah. See oh that? yeah, no, no, I, I would absolutely agree more often than not, you know, I'll, I'll look through trauma assessments and it's really, really, there's a lot that comes up. Mm -hmm. And then, um, I'm thinking of one instrument that we use as CSATs, the post-traumatic stress index. Yeah. A lot of times I, I get this a lot where someone will go the last portion of its, uh, abuse and, and, uh, you know, abuse assessment, people will, will kind of list all the different things they experienced and, a lot of times they'll tend to minimize the severity or impact. So they'll have all this whole list of things, but it, they seem to report it didn't affect me that much. So right. that I do absolutely experience that a ton. And I think probably the people that use the justification, it's it's probably they're they're not really wanting treatment. They're just they're wanting a kind of a check mark of like this, you know, they, they really want to get out of jail free card or something. So that's I think the people that are more serious, more often than not, they do minimize the impact of the trauma on, on their their experience. You know, and I have to wonder if at this point we we validate why that happens. So partners, this drives partners crazy, right? Because because they see, you know, they see the addict's family, they see the family dynamics, and they they when they try to point out certain things, a lot of times it's rebuffed or rejected. And so, um, why do you guys think that addicts do that? I have a, I've seen this, I mean, we've all seen this, but for me, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm putting myself in the, the, the client's shoes. I'm a kid going through a system that has a bunch of trauma and abuse. If I, and I, and I don't have a, usually I don't have a place to really process this or talk about it or make sense of the, the trauma. I, I'm just living in it. If I really let myself say, this is horrible, it's traumatic, it's not going to help me survive. So I think the impulse is to minimize the impact of it so that I can survive in a system. And then I say, well, it actually isn't that bad. This is, this is normal or this, there's people have it worse. So I feel like it's a, it's a really sophisticated survival mechanism. And then as an adult, it, we never really learn to say, to, to reflect on our past and say, no, actually it was pretty bad. And, you know, that takes a lot of courage and a, and a lot of kind of our whole structure internal structure changing to be able to, to open to that. So that's what I've seen. It's just a, I think it helps someone survive in a traumatic situation. I think another way that it shows up is addicts have a tendency to see things in all or nothing. And so if I look at my family of origin and I acknowledge the problems that were there and I will say that I am a believer that I don't care what family you come out of, there are problems there. It doesn't mean they don't love you and that there aren't really good things there, but there are going to be problems there. And so for many addicts, I think if they look at the family and they acknowledge that there are some problems there, there are some things that impacted me that created issues, for them, it almost feels like either they have to see things as perfect or they have to reject their family and, and, and identify the family as all 
problematic and bad and you know have have created all this pain for them and in recovery and again i think this goes back to that shame piece as people are healing their trauma as they're moving out of their shame and they're figuring and they're able to start to see the world in in nuance then i think it's easier for them to look at their family and see the nuances of their family which is the parts of their family that were really helpful and beneficial and supportive and loving and the parts of the family that were problematic abusive not nurturing neglectful um whether those were intentional or unintentional you know i yeah i i love that i i think there's a piece too of uh, that i find fascinating as we're talking about it is that um, blame so the addict will say i don't want to blame my family for who i am or what i did and yet ironically a lot of addicts will blame their partners mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so i i just you know I, I as i'm sitting here today saying gosh how is that happening right and so it's like okay is there some inherent non-safety with the family members unconsciously so they can't really stand up and say boy you guys you know didn't do the best job but is there the partner that they're the most attached to and a certain safety there where then they can blame the partner i mean i see this all the time for sure but yeah. i think of if i'm a three-year-old going through trauma that's and I, I can't speak up to say no i don't like this that's not okay you can't do this to me. I can't, I don't have that ability, but as an adult, I can do that. And maybe, maybe I still have my little three-year-old who experienced that trauma and that three-year-old can express it to the, to the, you know, people who they need to express it to. But I do have this one person who's right here that I can, I can kind of target. So I, it gets displaced, I think. And that's, nice yeah. So let's get back to the shame topic, which we're talking about, but we're talking around it. So how does all this relate to shame? And specifically, how does this relate to that shame core that we typically see with addicts that has been at the center of driving their addiction, putting it in place in the first place from typically a relatively early age? Well, I'll... I mean, if the shame, shame gives us messages, right? So that's what we're talking about, these installed messages. So shame tells me I'm bad, I'm unworthy, I'm uniquely defective, I'm unlovable. There's something wrong with me, something uniquely wrong with me at my core. And I, I this is kind of cognitive behavioral therapy 101, but those are core beliefs that I, I develop. And I'm not even aware of those core beliefs. Like I, I just assume those things from a young age and, and, because there's so many things we experience in daily life, uh, you know, we can we can find evidence to support those beliefs about ourselves, or we create those scenarios to support that, you know, well, the, the beliefs. You remind me of um, we used to talk about the core beliefs that sex addicts had, and there were typically three of them: I'm a bad, unworthy person; mm -hmm. sex is my most important need; I'm bad because sex is my most important need; and all of those core beliefs are just dripping with shame. Yeah. I'm less than. I'm not yeah. enough. Yeah. And I got to hide I got to hide who I really am because I don't think you would love me. Yeah. You wouldn't accept me, you wouldn't love me if you knew you knew how bad I really was. So, I think that's where we get to split with addictions and we'll have I'm going to show the world I'm a 
you know, magnanimous, blah, blah. I'm going to be the life of the party. I'm going to be the, you know, every, the hero. I'm going to be this, you know, high functioning executive. I'm going to do all these things to prove to you all that, you know, the, the smoke and mirrors that you're not going to really see who I really feel on the inside. So I think that's where we get the Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde split. Um, and then of course, if I'm doing things and my sexual behaviors that are outside of my value system, then of course, like you said, that's going to just, you know, in compound the shame. And I'm going to feel even more shame because this is more evidence that I'm a, you know, piece of garbage. Well, and, and like you were, you were saying there, you know, with that, I'm not, I'm not enough. I'm not good enough. There, one of my favorite phrases out of 12 steps is scratch an addict, find a codependent. I feel less than, I don't feel good enough. So I don't feel like I can really ask for what I want. So how do I get it? I have to manipulate the situation. I have to manipulate the people around me to get what I want because I don't think that if I ask for it, because I feel less than, I don't think they'll give it to me or honor me or, and, and how, how often do we see all that manipulative stuff in relationships with addicts? And I think it's kind of eye-opening to recognize that that manipulation at its core is really about feeling less than and shame. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think, Wendy? Ah, so, <laughs> yeah. So um, first I want to say, you know, the, the, the word codependence is, <clears throat> is uh, the, 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 that word codependence is, is getting a lot of uh, attention. <laughs> um, and so, um, so, so I, I guess I want to frame this as that I think when someone does not feel connected to themselves, they don't know who they are, they've never been supported to find out who they authentically are, that authentic self, um, that they find all kinds of strategies in order to try to connect and uh, try to survive. And so they do that in a myriad of different ways. Um, and so we talk about addicts, you know, it's so, so interesting. We talk about addicts being selfish and manipulative and deceptive and uh, they, they minimalize, they justify, they blame, you know, they do all these right, awful um, things uh, to call them defects of character, fourth step. And, um, and so, I love to say, but why, right? But why, why do they manifest this way? Some people say once an addict, always an addict, right? If, if this is just who they are, um, which it hurts, which, which hurts every time I hear that. Um, and it's a question that partners come up with over and over again. Well, is he going to change? Um, so, um, you know, so, Codependence, you know, when we talk about codependence, that's really saying I, uh, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm not here, so I'm going to defer to you, to give me worth, to give me value, to try to reflect back that I mean something in this world, right? Horrible place to be. Um, I see addiction as an acting out from that. Yeah. It's, it's, they're the, they're the same. I absolutely agree. I mean, we talk about addicts being narcissistic. Um, and I, I don't think 
you know, some people will say addicts or have narcissistic personality disorders. I, I don't think all addicts have that. I think that's extreme. But addicts have a tendency to be narcissistic in how they view situations, especially when their addict brain is active in doing things. But regardless of how it's presenting, my experience is exactly what you just talked about. Most addicts, when you get at the core of what's going on, it's shame. They feel less than. They don't feel worthy. They don't feel deserving. And their addiction is a way that they are using to cope with that, to find a uh, sense of connection or a sense of power or to to address some underlying issue that they think is going to make them okay. Um, it's It's gotten way out of control and it's become counterproductive and it's actually creating more chaos and damage than it was ever trying to heal. But at its core, it's exactly what you're saying. It's coming from this place as an attempt to deal with feeling not enough. And you're right. How sad, how painful. Mm -hmm. I just want to pause for a minute. And, you know, if you're joining us for the first time, you're listening to conversations on sex, addiction, and relationships. And we're talking about shame today, especially shame for the addict. Um, I was curious too. So in terms of uh, what do we do with this? So shame, we've got the shame core, we've got people coming in with the shame core that's just been compounded by their behaviors. And now they're usually in crisis when they come see us, mm-hmm. the relationships are devastated. You know, it's, it's a tough place, a tough, tough place to be in. So how do we address shame effectively as therapists? What do you before, guys, do you guys do with it? Before we go there, do we want to talk about the shame that comes up of addicts having to look at the their behavior and their addiction? Sure. I mean, I think that could be part of treatment for sure, but yeah, let's talk about it. Yeah. Wendy, you were talking about that, that earlier before we turn on the recording, I think you you were just talking about it beautifully. Can, can you, can you sort of walk us into this? Yeah, sure. So, um, so I'm in Boulder, Colorado and about a year ago, um, we had a devastating fire just South in a, a, a smaller town called Louisville. And um, it was devastating for that community. And so um, what I have found is that um, some people have left completely. They uh, have tried to sell the lot. Um, They have no interest in rebuilding. They have no interest in living here anymore. Some have moved out of state. Um, And so the idea is I just wanna leave and put this all behind me. Other people have gone back to the site over and over again. They're taking inventory about everything they've lost. Uh, They are trying to decide, do we rebuild on this site? Is is the trauma too much, you know, or do we just say, hey, you know, we love it here. This is is our home and we're going to rebuild this, this house and this home again. Um, and so I find that a lot of addicts, it's, it's this dynamic, a similar dynamic of, I did all this, this horrible thing happened and I did it. And so I just want to leave it behind. I just want to move on, not look at it, not talk about it. Um, it's over and I'm moving forward and, you know, partner, I want you to do that too. And then of course, in what we do is as sex addiction therapists, is we ask the addict to go back 
And, you know, I, we want you to look at the damage done. We want you to look at the, you know, the burnt embers and we want you to look at the devastation. Um, and it's extremely painful. Um, and so I find that there, at first, most addicts just don't want to do that. They want to do the first piece of let me just leave and move on. And so um, I don't think people from the fire are doing that from shame, but I think the addict does. Yeah, no, thank you. That, that, that's beautiful. And, and so what do we do with this, Dan, getting back to your question? You know, like we talked about earlier, we don't start here because when an addict is first walking into our office or they're first walking into a 12-step meeting, they're, they're usually so raw. And so, um, you know, if they're in touch with emotions, they're overwhelmed with them and being able to look at their shame to start with, whether that's the, the shame that they've been carrying from their past, or whether that's the shame of recognizing and looking at the behaviors that they've done and how they feel about it and the impact they've had on others, looking at that right off the bat is just not going to be helpful we have to do the work to help them build the foundation of sobriety first and we have to give them some of that resilience to be able to start tolerating that work but then it absolutely is Wendy like you said you have to go look I I find that there's a significant piece in this shame work for the addict to be able to look and and say what I did, I feel great embarrassment, pain, shame around. Regardless of what I did and regardless of how absolutely inappropriate it may have been, can I understand why it made sense to me at that time? And, and, and that's not saying the behavior was okay, but it's helping them to understand what was going on that was driving that behavior that 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 in that addict moment made it seem like a really good idea mm -hmm. i have a i just i completely agree uh my challenge my challenge with this yeah is um we don't have people in a bubble or in isolation so when i have if i'm seeing a sex addict come into my office I also know that there's most likely, obviously the situation can be different in different you know, scenarios, but generally we have an addict and then we have a betrayed partner, a coupleship that's in crisis, maybe a family that's in crisis, an extended family or community that's in crisis. So you know, going to, to Wendy, your, your uh, metaphor, I think it's so beautiful. The problem I think is it's not just, um, it's not just about looking at the fire. Maybe we can table looking back at the wreckage uh, for a bit when they have more resources, but I also don't want them to be starting a fire in the temporary housing or in the, you know, wherever they're staying. So sometimes, I don't know, like, where's the fine line? I have to address the impact, especially if there's ongoing acting out, ongoing emotional abusive behaviors, you know, and, and, and finding that line between calling someone out for this stuff and saying, no, you are damaging your relationship, not just in the past, but continually, so I guess there's that that fine line of not shaming someone on one on one side and not coddling them on the other. Like I think we have to address 
but it, continued perpetration if it's happening. And that work can be so important, though. I mean, I, you know, I've talked about myself being in recovery, and I know that when I was in my early recovery and struggling with sobriety, one of the things that was significant for me was figuring out what my motivation for sobriety was. And for me, the motivation that stuck was the awareness of how much my addiction just created pain for my wife and the awareness that whether my kids were directly um, uh, directly witnessed my acting out or not, my addiction was impacting my kids. And, you know, that's not pleasant to look at. It, 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 it's shameful to, to, to feel, but it at the same time created a significant amount of motivation that allowed me in those moments, because all addicts have these moments where their brain says, hey, if you just act out, all of this is going to go away. And it's okay for these reasons. Well, you know, having, being able to have that motivation to hold on through those moments and stay sober, it, it, it was essential. And it was a significant piece for me in, in taking that next step into my recovery. I, I'm glad we're having this conversation. So when, when uh, clients first come in uh, within the first or second session, I'm drawing on a whiteboard. Basically I draw a circle and I say, you know, this is, so this is you, this is the, let's just say this is the authentic self, this is you. And I said, because you've been school trained to give to others, um, you give to family, you give to work, you give to uh, and I, I don't say you, I say, this is, this is usually what happens with addiction is the addict will give to uh, family, give to church or religious organizations, give to um, the neighbors get, and they're giving, 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 giving. And at some point uh, they get, start to get angry and resentful. And when that happens, there's a part that says, what about me? And that's the part then that goes and if they're an alcoholic, has a drink. If they're a drug addict, they do a line of whatever. If they're a sex addict, they go and they act out sexually. But it's this, it's because there's a, this huge imbalance in their lives that they've really never looked at consciously or acknowledged consciously. Well, and let's circle back to shame, which is usually that imbalance is what they're doing to compensate for feeling less than. It's yes. do and do and do and do, and people like me, or with the more um, manipulative addicts, if I do and do and do, and people like me enough that they want to have sex with me or act out with me in whatever way, then I'm enough. I'm gonna add that on the chart, <laughs> on the diagram, because that's, really, yeah, that's a really important piece, right? So I identified the anger and resentment but then the next question is, well, why am I doing these things in the first place? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So back to your original question, Dan, what, what do we do with shame? <laughs> what do we do? There's so like, right. That's a yeah, huge, I, such a huge question. How, how do you wrap it up in sort of like UPS it somewhere else? <laughs> one thing I will just say one thing I like to do. Um, I, I like to, there's a narrative therapy intervention of externalizing. I, I like to have people because sometimes if I, I, uh, let me explain it. So I basically do a visualization where someone can start to see what shame their shame looks like when shame walks in the door what does shame look like 
if it were a figure, what does it, you know, give it dimension, have them draw that out if that needed. I think there's a something where I'm not aware when, when shame takes me over sometimes. So for me to say, oh, this is shame knocking at the door. Um, I think there's something that at least now I can hold. Uh, there, there's something that's coming to me rather than I am this. So there's a, there's a little bit of now I can at least start to have some recognition. Oh, yep. Now I'm in shame right now. And so there's some things I can do about that. But if I don't have that recognition, the partners will see this. And I think that's one thing that, you know, I, I love getting information from the partner because they'll be, they'll have recognized over time that they'll, pro how, whatever the person's, the addict's defense against shame. So that could be, maybe I collapse and I'm a victim and I say, you know what, you, I can't, you, you should, you should just divorce me because I'm so terrible. I'm such a terrible person which is not empathy, that's shame. And that's then the, asking the partner to come support me. Or maybe I get perfectionistic and I try really, really, really hard until I can't do it anymore. Or maybe I get, I can't handle my own shame. So I'm going to project it outward and blame it on you. And, you know, there's all these things that we can do with shame, but I guess I think at least starting with a, the foundation of what is, how does it, how does it show up for me? And then at least I can kind of see now, what do I do when it shows up? What are the, behaviors I do and I could start to work there but I mean this is huge because it's it goes to our core right like it, it cuts right to the core um and it's not easy to just sort of change these big beliefs about ourselves it takes time yeah and a lot of patience and love and you know support mm -hmm. that's anything what do you guys think what do you do yeah well it reminds me of the inner child work yeah of um, going back to that little kid who um, I do a visualization piece that uh, of going back and, and um, as an adult going back and seeing the little boy um, or little girl um, and the moment that they are visualizing that little one, most of the time that kid's alone and they're playing with a teddy bear they're they're playing in the sand and they're all alone it's uncanny when i say okay now you're going to go and meet your you know inner child or your little boy and um i don't say they're going to be alone they're always alone so this you know this idea that we're hardwired to be part of a tribe and that i i really believe that for addicts their tribe wasn't safe so now you're in, you know, so how, how does that work where you have to have, you know, love and support and caring and people around you and connection. And then you're in this family where that just isn't happening. How horrible. Yeah. So you do whatever you can to try to get any semblance of that. But at the core, you feel alone. Yeah. And you know, when you, when you talk about that, for me, it brings up from my perspective, how integrally connected trauma and shame are. And, and so I always think it's incredibly important for addicts to go in and do their trauma work, you know, whether that's a trauma intensive somewhere, whether that's working with a therapist who's doing EMDR or brain spotting or somatic experiencing. Um, but and, and and like we just, you know, recently talked with some people adding neurofeedback on top of that to sort of build on top of that work, but how important it is to be able to do that trauma work. And what I typically find is that 
when people are really digging in and doing their trauma work, their experience shifts from this happened and I feel less than to this happened and I feel embarrassed, which is a very different sense of shame. And it doesn't typically drive the addictive behaviors the same way. But I, I very rarely find people going there if they haven't done the deep, hard, uh, intensive trauma work. Um, it, it's so important. You know, one uh, other... Oh, and then I would say the next piece to that. So mm -hmm. is, um, and I'm embarrassed. And when addicts get to the next piece, which is I did that and I understand. Yeah. I understand why I did it. I'm not proud of it, but it makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Right? So that's compassion. That's moving into that nuance. You know, I, I will often talk about recovery lives in the middle of paradoxes. And one paradox in particular is, and, and for those of you who don't know, paradox are two uh, polar opposite ideas that are simultaneously true. One side of this paradox is, I will always be responsible for my behaviors that I did in my addiction and the impact that those behaviors fed on me and other people and the wreckage it has created. And that responsibility will never be lifted off my shoulders. And the other side of that paradox is I am actively working to live my life in a different way and I am not that person anymore and I should not be judged by what I did in my past because I'm actively living my life differently. And when addicts first start working with us, they're either stuck in what they've done in the past and they see it as all defining or they just wanna move on to the future and ignore that the past ever happened. And as we move forward in this shame healing work, when they've done that trauma work, when they get to that point, like you said so eloquently, Wendy, I understand why I did that. I'm not proud of it. I'm embarrassed by it, but I understand how I got there. It's when they can hold that paradox of I'm responsible and I'm living my life differently. Well said. Final, I'm just, I know we're mindful of time. Any final words on this? Uh, if, if for listeners or viewers that are maybe dealing with their own shame suggestions for them or for partner, betrayed partners who's, uh, who are in a relationship with someone who's an addict. So the first thing would be to listen to all three parts <laughs> and listen maybe with so, um, we have one on the um, we have one on the partner, one on the addict, and then we're creating one for the couple. Is that right? Do I have? No, that? we already did. We did a general introduction to shame. Thank you, general introduction to to shame. But a couple's one might. Maybe not. we do a course <laughs> <laughs> how shame is shared in the couple, um, because the, the, these 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 pieces, the, you know, there there would be no way that we did one podcast on on all of them. So we divided them up on purpose, um, but they they have different nuances. So to listen to all all three of them, maybe a fourth. Um, and and I think uh, the first question for anyone would be, not do I have shame? Yeah, but let's assume I do, how does it show up? 
Yeah. In different scenarios, how does it show? How do I compensate? How do I compensate for my shame? In my job, in my family, with any partner, um, how does that? How does it? How does it happen? How, what does it look like? What does it sound like? That is so important. And I think what I would say is start with that assumption, like you said, I have shame. How does it show up? And then go actively work on it. That can be through, you know, meditation and keeping yourself as grounded as possible. It can be through inner child work. It can be through journaling and trying to understand some of the nuances of what's going on. It can be going in and doing active work in a trauma workshop or with a therapist. But like like Wendy said, like you said, assume that there is shame there to start with and then actively step into addressing it. How about you, Dan? Well, I have a thought and I'm not really, I may be opening up another can of worms. So <laughs> I'm just going to say it. And if it will, we'll see where it goes. My, th my thought would be, um, I'm thinking of shame and now maybe it's the impact on the relationship, but work on it if if so to tim's point work on it and don't expect your partner to uh how do i say it do the work for you or you have to also recognize the impact of betrayal and trauma on the partner so know that it's yours to work through hopefully at some point your partner will have empathy for your story for your history for what you've been through but Right now, in this moment, um, your, your partner is also going through their own trauma of betrayal. So it, I just see go, it's, it's really difficult for the partner when, when you pull the partner in to try and, you know, save you from your shame. So don't know quite how to say that in a way, but you're talking about who can be the cheerleader. Yeah. You know, and, and, and the, I've seen many partners that when the addict was stepping in to do their their trauma work, the partner was able to cheerlead them and say, this is so great and I really appreciate it. But some partners have just been so weighed down and impacted by their own trauma that they can't. And so um, it's recognizing who can be your cheerleader in that moment. As your therapist, I'm gonna cheerlead you and say, you're doing good work. I know it's hard, that's great. The, the peers in your 12-step program, the recovery people, if you're in group therapy, the other people in your group, they can cheerlead you. But oftentimes, you know, a partner's experience is like, well, great, but you still sexually betrayed me and I'm still feeling the pain of that. I can't, I, I can't celebrate this yet. Right. Um, and it's just important to understand that that hopefully your partner in their own healing process can start to appreciate the work you've done, but they may not be able to be that support and that cheerleader for you when you're first stepping into it. Yeah, I know that's a that could be a loaded one, but <laughs> that's what I think it's an important thing to to know, especially early on. Hopefully, there will be a point, and I think this it can be really beautiful later on when you know when addicts show they really try to, to demonstrate understanding and getting the, the betrayal and the impact on the partner and then once once they're able to really do that then they can start to share their own story from the past and, and sometimes the partner can really hear them and where you know their own trauma where where things came from but trying to either push it too soon or expect something too early i think 
you know, like a 30 day chip. So you may be incredibly proud. You got 30 days of sobriety. Maybe you've never had that in your whole life. That's a big deal, but the partner is going to be, so you want thinking you want me to throw you a parade for not doing what I didn't think you were doing the whole time. I mean, it, it's not really, so I guess just understanding, like you said, Tim, who there are some, I'll be the biggest cheerleader as a therapist, uh, you know, peers, 12 step people. So there's just a, there's the, the betrayal that happens. And this is a, um, these things all work all together at the same time. So it's, it's a, it's complicated. Mm -hmm. well, and, I, and I think the, the, the adjunct to what you're saying is just because your partner isn't celebrating you doing trauma work doesn't mean it's not important for you as an addict to embrace it wholly and step into it. Right. Yeah. I, I, I think the more that we talk, the, the more, um, and conversations episode on shame with the couple yeah. What I hear a lot, a lot is, you know, the, the let's say the addict is the, as a man and uh, he says, and he's in a heterosexual relationship and he says, you know, my, uh, my wife, she's shaming me. She's shaming me. I'm telling her not to shame me. Don't shame me. And um, it gets pretty complicated, pretty quick. Yeah. And with this piece of I'm doing so well, and I wish you should, wish you could acknowledge that or see that. And the answer is, well, this to her, this shouldn't have happened in the yeah. first place. So yeah, you're not going to get rewards for doing better around the addiction, <laughs> right? So yeah. So you hear that all you conversationites out there? Stay tuned for part four of our shame <laughs> series, talking about shame and the coupleship. <laughs> and Thanks for joining us today on this, this discussion of shame where you're listening to conversations on sex addiction relationships. And we hope you like us, follow us on wherever you watch or listen to podcasts. And we look forward to having you join us next time. Thanks. Take care, everyone.